H.A. Jason here. Just listened to episode 1118, your old school reflections episode. It's very interesting hearing your evolving stance. Yeah, I definitely would not get tied up around the idea of OSR and definitions or any of that kind of thing. It's really about the play. It's not about the um, social groups, the the clans people want to get around, right? The tribalism. It's it, it's about the play and all that. And there, there's definitely lessons and interesting things to learn from old school, these older games, and especially the procedural dungeon crawl stuff that you like. But I've got a feeling that you and I are going to talk about that a little more in depth, so I won't leave you a long message on that topic. But it was great hearing the calls. It was great hearing your thoughts, and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Jay's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Oh, oh, oh I want to come back to the dice Whoa, oh, oh, oh I think I need some good advice I need a role-playing basket Oh, yeah I need a role-playing Hello Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying hobby. This is the third in a fresh sequence of conversations I've been having with various friends within the roleplaying games community. And this episode picks up a thread that I've been noodling around for a while, namely the value of Gygaxian era Dungeons and Dragons and what makes original Dungeons and Dragons and advanced Dungeons and Dragons valuable. Big thank you up front to my guest, Jason, and I hope that you find this as interesting as I did. This is Season 11, Episode 20, Talking OD&D and AD&D, with Jason Connolly. Jason Connolly is the host of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and a regular caller to the show. In fact, a regular caller to just about every show that I'm aware of, which is fantastic. But today I've invited him to come and talk about well, Dungeons and Dragons and especially why he's such a big fan of Advanced First Edition. So welcome to the show, Jason, and thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so um, the backdrop to this little conversation was that um, you've You've been calling it a bit, and there's a number of things I've noticed when we talk about D&D. Um, and one of them is that the other day you phoned in, um, and a recent episode I've published that uh, that call in, but it was basically saying about how uh, when I was talking about being uncomfortably old school and how I like complex games and a lot of people who like D&D don't like complex games, you called in about how complicated AD&D is and also mentioned that you have a particular affection for that game, um, yeah, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons first edition game. So I wanted to talk about that. But I've also noticed over time that you have also made statements along the lines of, don't like the rest of it, I'd have OD&D if I couldn't have AD&D. And I found that sort of fascinating, really, as a sort of um, a range. So have I got that right, first of all? Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, they're, they're slightly different things. And, and, you know, a lot of that's nostalgia driven, to, to be honest. If, if I was stuck with five RPGs, you know, how far <laughs> D&D would make it up on that list? I don't know. I, actually, no. they would probably both both make it there, but it, it yeah. might be tight. And the, and let's just be honest, the top two are probably going to be what? Barbarians and Lemuria and then probably ICRPG? Maybe. So both those are very versatile systems. I really enjoy Barbarians Lemoria. I know we're not here to talk about that, mm -hmm. that game, but I, for me, that is the ideal sword and sorcery game. Mm -hmm. if, if you want to capture that sword and sorcery feel, particularly the pulpier sword and sorcery, you, mm -hmm. you know, your, your movies and your, yeah. the Conan pastiches. I, I really think that Barbarians Lemoria is the game that does that. Mm. And yeah, it's that quite cinematic, loose uh, 2D6 right. system, right? If I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So, right. and then, and you like ICRPG. And I think more than anything, you usually bang on about how great the GM advice is. The, the GM advice is good. The nice thing about ICRPG is it, it's a, you know, it started as a stripped down version of House Rules for fifth edition. Mm. And then it kind of grew into its own system, you, you know, legitimately, you know, stands on its own as its own system, not just a house, set of house rules. But it, it's a very versatile system, and, and it it's very easy to run off the cuff. Mm. You know, I've I've 
played and run in a number of different games and it you know most recently i've been using it again for colonial gothic style games you know to run like mm. that sleepy hollow or that full car kind of thing with it and, and it you know it, the system gets out of the way and lets you do that which is really nice mm. Now, I've re- fairly recently had a conversation with uh, Rob over in Japan, Menyon, um, and we talked a little bit about his nostalgia for um, AD&D. And we talked, he was sort of at a time, I was at a point where I was just beginning to run second edition um, D&D, actually, in my Hiraeth game. I had a good chat with him. So obviously, reasonably familiar with the game, and I've kind of come back to it recently. Um, but it's one of those that I know that you do talk about a lot or you like to talk about a lot. So tell us a little bit, what is that, What is your particular love of AD&D all about? Where's that coming from? Well, so when we look at my history, really quickly, my history for role-playing games, you know, I started with the, the Mensa red box set of mm. Beckman, right? And, and then quickly moved up to AD&D. You know, we graduated to the advanced version, quote unquote, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I had never played OD&D or BX as a kid at all. That Those mm. all came in the 2000s when I got back in the hobby, mm. you know, with my son, G+, and that's when I was exposed to all that. But AD&D was really D&D for me growing mm. up, you know, playing. And, yeah. and then somewhere in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, after Unearthed Arcana came out, I don't remember if I ever had the Dungeoneer's survival guide and the wilderness survival guide but somewhere around that time when palladium games start hit hitting the market mm-hmm. around 84 because that's when i believe T- teenage mutant ninja turtles hit the market we kind of jump ship over to palladium mm-hmm. and, and then we played a variety of different things but we, we had we jumped and then when merp came out which is earlier than that we also played merp and and then we crap we added bits of role Ma- we never played role master the full game mm-hmm. but we added role master things to to merp so we, we were playing a bunch of different systems, but AD&D kind of fell off once we switched to Palladium. And, and so I kind of stopped playing AD&D in the, the late 80s mm-hmm. up until, you know, and then maybe I'd play a game here or there with somebody, but, but that's mm-hmm. about it. But So AD&D, though, was the first real serious fantasy game mm-hmm. that, you know, for me. And I have a lot of nostalgia for AD&D, and I, I like the community. I've gotten back into the, the community, especially over at Grog Talk, which is a, you know, Minion is also part of that, Rob over in japan is also part of that community he writes articles for their magazine flipping and turning mm-hmm. the print magazine um and ad is something it's it's just there's something about it that's that's interesting you know it's play it you know it definitely has a historical place in the hobby and, and the idea of having the rules it, it's not well edited at all the rules are spread across multiple books and accessories to be honest and, and you have to flip and turn that's where the magazine name comes mm-hmm. from you have to flip and turn to find the rules and all the different things but AD&D has been, you know, whether it's truly a set of tournament rules or not, one can argue, but AD&D tries to codify things mm-hmm. much more so than other, ver- the basic versions of the game did. And, and AD&D really is just, you take OD&D and all the supplements for OD&D, clean it up, and you can, and that is AD&D, you, you know, effectively. It, you know, AD&D and OD&D with supplements are much closer to each other than they are to any of the basic sets any of the basic versions of, of D&D. But, so for me today, modern day, Jason, 2022, the advantage, or not the advantage, the draw of AD&D is a combination of nostalgia and the challenge of running it, rules as written, tr- mm-hmm. trying to do that. There's nothing wrong with house ruling or making the game you're in, but the challenge of trying to do that. I'm in a bi-weekly AD&D group. Mm-hmm. You know, we play bi-weekly. I started up a play-by-post a while back and that kind of, faltered after a little bit like play by post tend to do and i'm not running any ad at the moment mainly because my schedule's very hectic as you, you know we've mm-hmm. experienced before with games so it's hard for me to commit to running a game just because the way my schedule is it's not fair to the players but i i do enjoy ad for the challenge but it's more of a nostalgia and a challenge factor and mm-hmm. enjoying being in those groups than a true love of the rules if that makes sense mm-hmm. And how's it going being a player in a game of AD&D at the moment? It, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, I'm enjoying it. We're, we're doing the, you know, the salt marsh and we're, we, we, we just screwed up the, the attack on the spoilers, <laughs> I guess here, here, right. But it's an secret salt marsh, but we, 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 we screwed up an attack on a smuggler ship, a, a pirate ship. And so a number of us are now prisoners of the pirates, and, but a couple escaped. So mm-hmm. I don't know we're not sure what's going to happen yet we'll see next session because 
the people that escape don't necessarily know the people that are prisoners are alive. So either the people that escape are going to make characters on the pirate ship and we'll all be pirates, or maybe the rest of us will make new characters, but we'll find out, or maybe, you know, we'll encounter our characters again. So that'll be interesting to see. But, mm. you know, AD&D is a lot of fun. I'm playing a, at the moment, my character's an elf, uh, magic user thief. Okay. Well, so the background for me is that um, I'm returning to Dungeons and Dragons really to try and I'm trying to get into like how the the game originally got people playing, you know. So I, I guess my focus has been not so much on the mechanisms of actual play and combat and all of the character creation stuff and all that, but actually much more on what is being said about how to set up a game. Um, and so what was really fascinating was like going back to OD&D, which is where I started this little journey and, and discover, I mean, some things that people assume, for example, um, I've had it said to me before that, you know, OD&D is really a, a dungeon game. It's about mega dungeons. And that's sort of partly true. But actually, book three is about wilderness adventures mm-hmm. too. And it talks actually about town adventures a teeny bit as well in there, which was kind of interesting to get. Um, but what is also fascinating is to see like the actual specific advice given about how to set up a game. Now, if you go, if you come forward to sort of 2000 and was it 2015 when fifth editions released, if you look at the fifth edition rule books, most of that kind of information is absent, you know, like, so over the years, I think it's been said by many people, but this kind of the procedures of play, um, and actually how to play, how to set up a game, how to set up a dungeon, how to set up a wilderness adventure. Um, the idea of a hex crawl, for example, seems to have evaporated around about 1989. Um, you know, all of these things, that they kind of have gone out of the hobby in a lot of ways. And obviously the hobby has evolved in different directions, which is not bad, but just different. So yeah, I've been coming back to the beginning. And then I started to work my way through the various editions. And I have in front of me a copy of Holmes, and I've got in front of me a copy of BX. I've got Beck Me on the Shelf and AD&D in second edition as well. Um, and yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And of course, there's also this thing of like, well, if I was going to run a game of D&D, you know, where would I start? What would I do? You know, it's kind of like a, a kind of a big open question, isn't it? And of course, there's always the danger of starting to argue about which is best. But I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation about actually what are these games offering? And and why it was that you felt particularly that either OD and D or AD and D sort of held for you um, a good package. That was what, kind of where I'm coming from. So OD and D is like I said, I never had OD and D back in the day, so I've only mm. experienced that you know as an adult, like like I said, since pr- probably 2007, 2008, that mm. somewhere in that time frame. Uh, OD and D to me shines as the three little books. Not mm. the supplement, because if I'm going to start adding supplements, I'll hop to AD&D, right? Yeah. So OD&D itself is you know, pretty bare bones. And it, it's fascinating because if you read OD&D in isolation without knowledge of the other editions, you know, it does some things very differently than any of the later editions did. Yeah. And OD&D is also, the, the other draw of OD&D is, is this mythical version, and, and it's very much not historical is the idea of using chainmail for the combat system. Hmm. You know, yes, chainmail is called, you know, the combat system. And when you look in there, the alternative combat system is the D20. But every all the designers, everybody at TSR ran it with the D20 combat system, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't play it with chainmail's combat. But we've seen a rise of people trying it and playing it with chainmail's combat system. Mm-hmm. And chainmail is fascinating because it's a very versatile system. It gives three different modes of combat in chainmail. You know, the fantasy combat effectively is is like a lot of these super light games where you you kind of roll dice, whoever wins, and you just kind of narrate what happens, you, <laughs> you know. And then you have Man on Man, which is very closer to what they try to recreate with something like RuneQuest, where it's a lot more detailed for your individual duels. And then you have the standard combat. So mm. you, you add a lot of versatility in there. And then Chainmail is very easy to hack. And that's the other thing. So for me, the draw is the ability to hack it. And the, and the interesting way to zoom in, zoom out of combat and and do these different things. Um, so, so that's kind of how I look. If I want to play a game, quote unquote, rules as written or try to play rules as written, that's where AD&D comes in. But mm-hmm. if I want a game I can hack, because you could take OD&D, you can take any game and do this, but I think OD&D is versatile enough you could easily use it to run sci- science fantasy. Or you could easily take it, and you could even do a horror game if you're using, say, the fantasy combat table with it, with, with Chainmail. So, so it's a very versatile game. It's an interesting game, of course, because it's the, the first role playing game. It, it has that draw as well. 
So. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are interesting and worth actually unpicking in there. Um, and I think the second, com- the last comment you just made is interesting. Is it really a role playing game? Um, right. Because it's a really fascinating question, um, and especially reading through basic D and D and going through um, and, and sort of seeing how the game evolved. And it's a procedural game in lots of lots of different ways. There, it's kind of interesting. And where does it? Come role playing. Um, mm-hmm. What do we mean by that? Because that's a much later. I mean, that term is eighties, you know. Right. Um, but the other thing about it is that it's talking about OD and D, you know, and it's hackable. But it's almost like it's necessary because it's incomplete, right? Mm-hmm. It, it. I mean, what if you go back to reading alarms and excursions from the earliest issues, which I've first hundred or so I've read through, you know, mm-hmm. that's the first thing that people are encountering. They're encountering this game and they're going, "Oh, well, I don't get it," or "I get it." But actually, as they start comparing notes, as GMs compare notes, they realize that they have interpreted it in completely different ways. And their arguments over and discussions around all sorts of details and minutiae with how to run this thing, because it is seemingly incomplete. Um, you know, it's lo- lovely little things. Like, the, I know that, for example, if I throw oil in od and I've now got to decide what damage it does. And of course, you'd assume 1d6 because everything does. But it's it's not stated if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. The GM has got to make decisions and rulings about like the stuff as it goes forward. It When you get to AD&D, the attempt here is that this is the complete game and that many more things are covered, you know. And and this is what, and the, the sort of follow-up from that that fascinates me is the claim in the sort of old school renaissance movement that rulings, not rules, is the way forward. And AD&D is part of this movement and yet, AD&D explicitly seems to not want you to play in that way. It, it's a sort of fascinating tension. It, it is. And AD&D is an odd duck because the the old school renaissance and, and a lot of things that, that you're interested in exploring and looking back for the procedural play and, and, and these early things like the hex crawl that have been dropped out of modern games. The other people, you know, the OSR also is interested in those things. And mm. we see that in, in these OSR products. And we see that in, you know, the retroclones and, and supplements mm. and, and all these things, which is one of the reasons I said, you know, Heart, really, you're looking a lot of the same things the OSR community mm. is. You're looking to do it with GURPS or whatever, but but mm. it's still all the same ideas. Um, where, yeah, AD&D, they can't deny it. You, you know, it, it's like that redheaded stepchild or, or, or that, you know, the adopted kid or whatever, you know, and, and I'm not saying anything against redheaded people or, or people that are adopted, but, but it, it it's that, but AD&D, they can't deny it's part of all this. I mean, Osric is one of the very first pieces of the OSR and mm-hmm. Osric was written to allow people, it wasn't written to replace AD&D, it was written so people could publish legal, legally publish modules that they could play with D&D. They can mm-hmm. publish new material for AD&D. And so AD&D is definitely, it's part of it, no matter what definition you use. But but, but when you actually read AD&D, yeah, it's definitely not a, you, you can play it rules over rule, or, you know, rulings over rules, but it's mm-hmm. not written that way, right? Mm. And it's an interesting thing as well, it's development this idea of, of rules as written, because again, going back through the 70s and 80s, um, you know, looking at the various sort of publications that were being made, you know, in the in the hobby at that time, people weren't playing rules as written. Rules as written, you know, even like in um, I've got BX Basic in front of me, and it explicitly says that these rules are more like guidelines. Where is it? Right. The purpose of these rules, in inverted commas, is to provide guidelines that enable you to play and have fun. So don't feel absolutely bound by them. And it's on B3. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a really interesting thing that we have over the 50 years, I guess. We have gone from this, hey, I've got this really cool thing and I've published it. And guys, you know, why don't we all sort of leap on the bandwagon and, and play this and share our ideas and collaborate? And, and then we kind of arrive at AD&D, I think, where we get the first step of actually, this is the game, guys. Play this game. Um, and then from there, we've moved more and more into this land of, this is the published book. You will play it the way it's written, please. Um, I find I, it fascinating. I, I do too. And I think part of this is a commercial aspect. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, once you get commercial and, and once you get companies involved, we get money involved and we get legal lawyers involved and all this, right? So it's early seventy seven, and and earlier than that. But so you have AD OD and D comes out, and we have all these other people doing their own thing. You know, Dave Har- Hargrave is a big one with Arduin, right? Mm-hmm. And it's early seventy seven. They were going after him for Arduin. They were saying, "Hey, you can't do this. You're infringing on our our thing." And, and so I things like Arduin popping up, and then obviously 
the other worlds and and other things being published. You know, Judges Guild had permission from TSR to to publish things, but you had a bunch of other things that didn't have permission that they kept going after. And I think things like mm-hmm. that pushed what you see in AD and D, where this you know in 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 the front. And I think a lot of AD and D though, AD and D also tells you you know make the game your own. Mm-hmm. I don't have the book in front of me, but it has passages like that in there. But there's also Gary's talking to you. AD and D is interesting because especially the DMG, he's having a conversation with the reader. It's not as much procedural, although there are a lot of procedural things in the DMG, but he's talking to you. So when he's talking about only use official AD&D miniatures, that's not serious. He's, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek with some of this. When the DMG says, you know, if a player looks in here, they should suffer the worst death or, or whatever the verbiage is, you know, it's, it's obviously tongue-in-cheek, you, you know. But I think that those legal problems pushed, pushed it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, whether they're really problems or not, you know, you could question. But but I think those things like that are a big reason. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating to watch. You know, OD and D comes out, and then the sort of you basically you're bringing together the wargaming community and the science fiction community. Um, it's been well documented by those yeah. historians. Um, but it, and it's sort of a ble- weird blend, isn't it? And then you have like various GMs all over the world, uh, but lots of them in America, obviously being the home of it, starting to sort of publish and do their own things, muck around things. And it, some of the things that really stick out to me are like the pairing conventions, which yeah. eventually become RuneQuest, you know. And like you said, Dave Hargraves are doing stuff. He's writing from around about 30, I think it's Alarms and Exertions, around about 26 he first pops up, and then from about 32 or something on for a while, he's writing quite a lot of stuff and he's publishing his own are doing grimoire booklets you know and that sort of stuff there's just two great examples of stuff that's going on and it's really modifying the OD&D game um in 77 we get uh, the Holmes edition of basic um so you know you sort of said that it's it's OD&D and it's AD&D so what for you is the the difficulty with that into it we get the 77 rewrite and then we get the 81 and 83 rewrites for basic so talk a little bit about that so, and and I I need to put out here I'm no kind of scholar on any of this. Sure. So I, I I don't want to. Nor me. <laughs> right, right. But basic, they're always looking for that onboarding. They they're always looking for that way to get new players in. Mm. And, and they and I and they recognize that OD and D was kind of impenetrable, right? I mean, we we see that so famously with Ken Saint Andre with Tunnels and Trolls, mm. where he says, "Wow, this is a neat game, but I can't make heads or tails of these rules. I'm going <laughs> to write my own." You know, and that was seventy five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they knew they needed something that was more palatable to somebody picking it up. And that's and and Dr. Holmes reached out. I think he even reached out and offered to write it. I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. history, but I believe that's the case. And and so we have the Holmes basic set. And it but it solely it goes levels one to three, and it solely exists to get you ready to jump into the full game. Mm-hmm. Right. And and even the the Menser set, although Beckme went up to 36 level and then to the um immortals and mm. all that really the original idea and i'm sure gary's idea with that was always again onboarding it's get people to mm. yeah this is basic kitty ad or kitty D, and then you graduate to advanced mm-hmm. right because who doesn't want to play the advanced game you know when you have a book even with war games you have the basic rules and the advanced rules we quickly want to jump to the advanced rules for whatever the game is mm. um so so i i that's I, I think where it comes in as far as the company looked at it, but the company quickly saw that, especially once you hit Beckme, when, once you hit the Menser set, that the sales were there. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have I, the sales numbers had been published for TSR, or at least some of them have been. And, and I haven't studied that. So I, so I may be talking that turn here. But Beckme, obviously, you, you know, ju- the sales justified the expansion of that line because mm-hmm. there, there's a heck of a lot of support. You know, Mastar, you have the Gaz Tears, you have tons of modules, you have a lot of support for the, that basic line. But mm. I don't know that that was ever, I, I think TSR was, okay, we have to do this because, you know, we have to sell things. But I don't know that they ever really wanted that. Um, I, I think it was a byproduct of it, of their own inadvertent success. Yeah, a couple of interesting things in there because in the early 80s, like late 70s, early 80s, we start seeing the wider more experienced you know been doing it for maybe six or seven years came in community complaining about the you know how many young kids are coming on board and that would have included me um you know 77 i was six years old so you know 81 uh we were certainly playing D D 
um 8081 so you know what was i nine ten um and you know so i would have been one of those so-called munchkins that have become the, the great joke uh that steve jackson games likes to keep banging on about um so there's that element of like ad you know D onboarded people who you know were young and and a lot of the older gamers didn't like that and you you see that in various publications um i think most interestingly in the is i can't remember the uh, shared fantasy is it i can't remember the author of that book but he's a sociologist and you know one of the uh, things in there is okay. is about like young players and mm-hmm. and how irritated some of the older players were by them which is kind of interesting um but also what always fascinated me about basic is how it's different to ADD. like even down to like there are different creatures there are different stats for things um you know that we all know about class races class and all of that but there are lots of other little details you go into the monsters for example all sorts of stuff that's actually quite different it's almost like they're separate they're like being developed in a separate way you know well yeah and one really interesting thing that i know still frustrates i encounter people in discords and talk to people all the time and this frustrates them and they don't understand it. But when you read OD&D and AD&D, the sleep spell, the sleep spell in OD&D and AD&D is not X number of hit points, like a range of hit dice that go to sleep. You roll for this many first level, one hit die creatures, this many second, mm-hmm. hit, right. two hit die creatures, this number three to four hit die, whatever it is. And, but you roll for all those categories, right. you, you know, and that's how OD&D and AD&D works. Once you hit the basic sets, you do a X number of hit dice. Mm-hmm. But people want to import that back. But that's not how the, the other, you know, these OD&D, AD&D work. I mean, and that's a, a pretty fundamental difference when, mm-hmm. when you think, you know, it makes sleep a heck of a lot more powerful. Yeah. Um, and of course, the basic version is what's come through third, fourth and fifth edition. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. idea of a number of hit dice and all the rest of it, which is, again, an interesting decision from Wizards um yeah i've got a sleep a sleep at affecting two to 16 first level types hit dice up to one plus one and then from two to 12 second level types and from one to six third level types and one fourth level type <laughs> that's it um yeah it's it's you like an interesting difference and of course they're the one of many right, many. Yeah. many 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 you know yeah um yeah there are some things that i really like in basic that just aren't in um you know ad and d uh shadow elves being a good example mm-hmm. of that as a, as a race um again it's like a different take on things and they are distinct from dark elves which you know is is kind of interesting right okay i wanted to cycle back to this thing about because i'm looking at the procedures and play and i'm looking at um you know the role pl- like the element in the idea of role playing now for me you know i'm going to say up front these are role playing games because what they invite a person to do is to create a character and make decisions in role as character and so for me that's what a role playing game is about making decisions in character um the acting is an optional extra, extra as far as i'm concerned but i i know that's controversial <laughs> but you know that that's 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 the thing you're taking on the role of a character and you are you know making decisions in in character but one of the things that strikes me about really early dungeons and dragons is the procedural nature of it and the abstracted nature of it as a game you know so what i mean is like the 10 minute turn where you can do one thing uh you know you move up to your movement rate and then you can like search a room or do a thing searching a 10 by 10 square area of a room for a trap allows you a one in six chance or something of finding the trap irrespective of how experienced you Mm -hmm. are or anything else um these kind of like very gamey um elements that kind of you know that allow you to um run the game in a in a very clear and and in some respects probably the clearest part of the game if you ask me is this whole how do you do stuff and it i guess it's best packaged in the basic rules yeah. and, and sort of summarized although they're all different all three of them um so yeah but it's this question of like the degree to which like if we compare like how role-playing games are played like 50 years later by a lot of people how recognizable are these games as the games that they've become you know and it's kind of fascinating to me this question um i know what you think about that i i think it's interesting and and i agree with you i think the um ac- actually the mulvey basic is probably your best clearest presentation of that mm. it, even it, osc is great os you know he's done a great job of making it modern formatting and all this but by leaving out the play examples it really loses something because mm. You, you know, when you look at that Mulvey basic set, the BX set, 
and or but that first book especially and he goes through those things and you read the examples they show the things in those examples those examples are amazing and, and not one of the huge things in the example are they parlay you, you know it shows it's not a com it's not just a combat game you're supposed mm -hmm. to do more than combat right mm -hmm. so so they're so important and and you know modern games don't always have play examples or they don't always hit things like that i mm -hmm. yeah i think it is a very interesting thing and you know we have to remember these were originally adventure games right mm -hmm. or fantasy adventure game i think is what it was originally mm -hmm. tagged as and and people it took a while to get to the point i think now i'm sure people played where they dove into the character and did all that mm -hmm. initially we had that before D, D existed with some of these western skirmish games yeah. and you know people talked and used western slang and you know put mm -hmm. on an accent and played the, their cowboys in these western skirmish games so we know this existed and yeah bronstein and everything else but yeah, I think the procedural part is really interesting, and and I think it's a valuable part of the game, and it's an enjoyable part of the game for a lot. Now, not for everybody. Some people, that's not their thing, but for a lot of us, it is a very important part of the game. And and even in AD&D, you have that. It, it's Unfortunately, it's just not shown as concisely, and it's, like I say, the, the Mensa Basic is really where it's at. That's mm. I, it's still, that I prefer that these days to Beckman. I prefer the presentation in the Mensa Basic. I think that's it, you know, if you can only have one, it's hard to argue against that set because it's going to take you a while to get to 14th level, everything else. That really can do all your D&D, &D, everything you mm -hmm. want to do. AD&D &D is, like I say, is more of a nostalgia thing and a challenge. But no, I, I think it's interesting. And some games have tapped in and not just traditional OSR games. So you have like Five Torches Deep and you have, have these other games out there that are very much procedural games, modern games, you know, mm -hmm. in the last 10 years. It's come back. But that definitely dropped out you know, during the nineties and stuff, you didn't have, I, I've never played werewolf or any of those games, but I, I have a feeling there weren't procedural dungeon crawl or obviously weren't dungeon crawls, but I don't know that there was procedures like we have, you know, in the basic sets in any of those games. I had an experience the other day that kind of really got me thinking about this quite deeply. I've, um, I grabbed a copy of what's a game called D 100 dungeon. It's a solo mm -hmm. adventure game, um, created by Martin Knight, I think is the author. Um, and I hadn't heard about it. So I, I grabbed the copy of this and I started playing through. Um, and it is a procedural dungeon call, right? So essentially as a solo game, you, you're at a character and then you go into a dungeon and you're randomly like determining the next location. It's kind of off charts and whatever you find and the monsters all off random tables, you know, pretty much actually procedurally very recognizable as coming from the roots of the hobby. Um, and everything's running on a D, D100, hence the name of the game. But it was a really interesting dynamic going on there. I'm playing this game and I suddenly realized that it wasn't quite a role-playing game. And it, and all, although I'm running a single character and I'm making decisions in character, but it wasn't quite a role-playing game because what it wasn't was uh, the la layer of description, first of all, coming from a GM. So you go into a room and I've got a room with three exits and, you know, and there's, I don't know, there's a rock there and there's a, chest and there's some rats so i fight the rats and i go and open the chest and i go and investigate a door and i'm rolling and tests and everything else but of course because it's me and a solo game and it's a procedural process there's no real dialogue there's no description and, th and that yeah. that missing element that interactive element you know with other people kind of got me thinking about this whole thing of well, when does it become a role playing because this is a procedural board game really right. That's what it feels like. I'm drawing out the rooms on a piece of a grid on a map thing, and I'm tracking everything. And it's doing 90% of what like classic D&D dungeon crawl is doing, but there's something really def definitely missing in there. And it comes from the interaction, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, an important question of this thing of what makes this a role-playing game? Because I've always said it's the thing about making decisions in character that makes it a role-playing game. Now I'm not so sure. I think that there's something like more that somehow or other OD and D managed to sprinkle in in the original game. Yeah, I think you know we talk about emergent story and the importance of emergent story and and, mm. and it being its own medium, right? Mm. You, you know, I know that you you dislike when people use say movie terms or filmmaking terms mm -hmm. in describing role playing games because they're different things, they're different yeah. medium, right? And and the the idea of this emerging story from the actions of all the players is important. Mm -hmm. So I, I would agree with that because I think you need at least two players, you know, whether it's a, a GM and a player 
you know, at minimum, or, you know, possibly two players in a jamless game using the mythic deck, you could, because you, mm-hmm. you're still getting that interaction. But I think you need to be bouncing off another person to, to really get. I don't know how to exactly put that as a definition that makes sense, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, to totally quantify it, but but I do think because when you're doing the advanced or not advanced fighting fantasy, when you're doing a fighting fantasy book, it's a lot of fun and it's super descriptive and it, it's evocative mm-hmm. and, and you're rolling dice, right? You're mm-hmm. you're doing these things, but it's not the same as playing mm-hmm. with a person. And same thing with a computer because a computer, you know, no matter how advanced these games are these days, the computer can't totally replace a human as far mm-hmm. as the interaction goes. Fighting Fantasy is an interesting one because I think it makes it and D100 Dungeon, you can see this as well and obviously with computer games you can see it I think. Um, I think the element there is the limited amount of choices which always sounds really weird because when you actually think about it, there aren't that many choices that people actually make when they're playing a dungeon game. You know, you don't actually do that many wild things. Most people are doing similar kind of procedures they're following through. You know, I I, I will search the room. I'll go and have a look in the cabinet and I'll open the chest and I'll look behind the door, you know, all that. But actually there is something about when my choices are constrained to uh, turn to this page or that page or the other page, or you can do this, this, and this, or if it's a computer, it might be there are many options because the computer can handle a lot more potential choices than you know we can on the paper or whatever. But still, it's constrained. And I, I don't know, there's something about the fact, the very fact that it's constrained that immediately changes its genre of game. I don't know if that makes sense, but... It, it does. Well, think about, you know, the first game we ever played together, it was a Barbarian's Lamori game, and you were a player and, and you blundered into a guard's room and, and, the, and the guards are there playing dice mm. and, and you immediately thought well i'm gonna pretend like i belong here and i'm gonna offer to play dice you know <laughs> try to join their game of dice right and you know would it now it's possible an author would have thought to include that into a fighting fantasy book but but that's the kind of off the wall thought that may or may not be included in a choice in, you know in, in a scripted choices but mm the GM has to be able to go. And that's where that rule rules over. I mean, I'm sorry, rulings over rules comes in because the, the GM has to be able to think on their feet and react and adapt to mm. what, the, and that's where the emergency story comes from. So I think to get that emergency story, you need humans involved. And I think what's really rich about it, coming back to these old games is that they're providing you with a whole bunch of tools that allow, like give you a framework within which mm-hmm. to run a game. But actually there's this, implied i don't think it's explicitly stated necessarily but it's very implied sense of and you're going to have to improvise around this you you know that when i'm rolling so i'm down the dungeon and every two turns or three turns depending on which book i'm using dnd i'm using but i'm going to roll a, a wandering monster you know and i get a wandering monster and i roll on the table and i see what i get and then i've got to like feed that into the into the procedure of the game and decide how far away it is and whether they get surprised all those little bits and pieces that are in there but that ger- generates the unknown for everybody, including that referee, right? That the I mean, I was I was realized I was playing um just looking through BX actually again, and I was playing through my mind one of the examples that's given there. And I was thinking, well, I could be in a dungeon room and you could actually be engaging with the monster that's in a room, and then you could roll a wandering monster at the same time and have that kind of pile in as well, which would be a pretty mm-hmm. nasty situation. Um, and and I was thinking about all the different permutations of how that could work, you know, that like every other turn you could get really unlucky, and there could be lots of wandering monsters, and some of them are brutal, you know, if you use the tables that are in the example tables in the BX book or the basic book, you right. know. Um, but yeah, the, the, the magic juice seems to be that, you know, exactly that, that actually whilst the referee has written out, drawn out a map and maybe keyed things and, you know, has all sorts of kind of treasures and things for the people to find, a great place for them to go and explore, that the system itself is providing um, this kind of random things and throwing up, anomalies really into that process for everybody to process well 100 percent. you know if you don't have a grappling hook <laughs> with you on your equipment sheet but you have iron spikes and you have a rope or you have a crowbar or something and a rope you could improvise a less than perfect grappling hook and try to use that mm. right but w- without humans to interpret that you you can't do it right yeah so that's where the you know the other people come involved come in there okay i'm going to cycle back to the rules as written thing again because Mm -hmm. um i remember a few years ago i wrote a blog post about 
how in basic D&D, if you come to a locked door and you don't, if you have a thief and they fail their 25% chance and you don't have a wizard with wizard lock, you can't open a locked door. And now back then I had a comment on the blog, which was basically, that's not how anybody would have played. Everybody would have allowed you to like find another way around or shove, smash, smash the door open or find some other way of opening the door. You know, any, any decent GM would like allow you to improvise around that, which I think is true. But mm. rules as written, there are two ways to open a locked door. And if you're a thief and you fairly roll, you can't change and you can't have another go until you get to level two. And if you don't have a wizard, like the, the sorry, knock is the spell, not wizard, wizard mm-hmm. lock the other way around. The knock has a spell, you can't open the door as written, you know, um, because a stock door and a locked door are different things in the rules as written. Um right. Now, this is the thing that fascinates me. So when I first encountered, came back to the OSR, that's when I was writing this stuff. And I was going, well, you know, coming from the modern game mindset, which is the game designer has written this game in this way, and this is the way it's supposed to be played. So you play it that way. You know, I'm thinking like I was third edition back then. Um, And I won't say I was hidebound, but it had become less familiar, this idea of like, you know, you'd improvise around the rules a lot more because there's a heck of a lot more things that are covered in that rule book. In you know, in the same way that AD&D provides a lot more worth basis than BX does. But that being said, you know, I was arguing at the time that well, but that's what it says in the rule book, you know. Um, and I find it fascinating that actually we we have kind of almost split as a movement into these these sort of the spectrum there i suppose not the strictly two camps but some people are more like i want to play it as it is in the book please and yeah. some people are much more like actually what's in the book is just a bunch of yard lines to get us started and actually some people if you say they say to you they're going to play a game of bx by the time you're playing with them you realize you're not using bx at all you're using a whole bunch of house rules that actually um, bear very little resemblance to bx as written um what do you think about all of that i mean it, it's weird thing, isn't it? This rules is written. It is. And, and to be honest, as I get old, I, I appreciate house rules. People love to write house rules. One of the draws, of the OSR in these games is to create, you know, add on your own systems. It's very easy to bolt systems on, remove systems out. Look at the vast number of different ways to do thief skills. When you look out there, there's tons and tons of different hacks to do thief skills, different ways. Right. Uh, personally, and this is just me speaking, I, I have nothing against house rules. When I run certain games, I include house rules. With Cyberpunk 2020, when I run that game, there are certain house rules I include when I run it because I, I think it run, works better that way. So I'm not against house rules. But in general, because of the limited play time I get to have these days, I would just as soon play a game, rules as written, and have the DM have the power to make a ruling if, if something comes up. Because everybody has the rules and has access to the, the rules as written. It's simple and, and we can just play the game and not fiddle with all these, you know, minutia of why well, I'd rather the fighter advance slightly better than he does and have this special ability. And some of the things are fine. Like, I'm not against house rules. I'm not against the idea of Sunder Shields where you can sacrifice mm-hmm. a shield to absorb all the damage from a hit or anything. You know, some of these are very creative, very cool rules, but rules as written to me is almost just easier because. I don't get to play much and I just want to play the game as mm. opposed to the fiddliness of it. It's a lot easier if it's just on the page in the book. Let's go. <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense. It does. Absolutely. And of course, there's a point where essentially what happened originally, you know, where your house rules, essentially you've created a new game now, mm. you know, um, and we see that with our doing and we see that with Rune Quest. We see that, you know, Tunnels and Trolls, all sorts of games mm-hmm. through the years, you know. So, um, and of course, I think that's perhaps what's, you know, really proliferating now with everybody and their dog having their own kind of system that they're publishing and putting out there, you know, and showing off all of the different creative ideas that they've had, none of which is a bad thing. Um, It's just fascinating to me, though, that we still, we have this kind of, um, if it's written down, it must be the way it should be played. And yet, if we go right back to the beginning, we see that, first of all, what was written down was flawed and had huge holes in it and needed to be like, fiddled around with but secondly that that actually was i don't think how it was ever really intended um you know like this was a the starting point this is how to get going with a game like this you know right and we know that gygax and you know when you look at any of the designers they don't play the games as written Mm. and even modern game designers when when you look they're not playing the rules as written they're playing 
what their future version of the game is. So they're, you know, they're three yeah. or four rule sets or drafts of rule sets ahead that they're actually playing with. Right. Yeah. So the designers and, and the creators aren't playing usually rules as written. I'm, I'm sure there are examples where they do. Right. So, I'm, yeah. you know, that's not a hard and fast rule, but for generally they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it is interesting. And, and for me, the, the idea of rules is written is more of a expedient to get to the game you know, quit, let, let's, let's stop the philosophy and just play as opposed to the, you know, the idea that's how you should play. It's definitely not a, a bad, wrong, fun kind of thing for me. It's just a, hmm. you know, you know, want to roll dice, not, you know, fluff about, about the, hmm. you know, what, what percentage a thief gets on this or that. So coming back to advanced first edition, do you see that as a sort of Gygaxian arrival point? Cause that's what it's sounding like having had this conversation uh because you know, let's be honest you know we know that mm-hmm. from the history right so is it 85 86 gygax is pushed out of the company in the second edition of the game which is 89 um yeah actually comes out right. and it's it's not edited by him it's not he's you know he's no longer part of the company okay so at the end of the first edition um you know that's that process through of adding in those books we've got um you know uh, unearthed arcana and and the wilderness and the dungeoneers survival guide are in that period mm-hmm. aren't they they kind of yeah. like take us to what some people refer to as 1.5 but yeah right. do you do you see like ad and d is the culmination of like from 1974 through the sort of the gygaxian vision yeah i kind of break up these days when i look at D, if i have to break it down i break down to Gygaxian D&D and post-Gygaxian D&D, right? Mm-hmm. And the basics are weird because they are, even when Gygax is there in full, in full power, mm. right? They're, they're still their own thing because somebody else is writing them. He's not writing the basic sets. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, you take care of that because that's not that important. I'm going to worry about the, the important <laughs> game, right? So so the basic sets are an odd duck. But yeah, I, I think AD&D, but I don't... So part of AD&D, of course, is to get Arneson off you know, he publishes it, so that kind of cuts Arneson out, which, mm. and I'm not getting into the Gygax, Arneson fight, whatever. Arneson, he, he had to fight some. He eventually got quite a bit of money out of TSR, mm. and these days Arneson gets credit, as he should, you know, mm. but both of them, you know, deserve credit. They both have a big hand in in where D&D is gone. Um, it's not that you know, only one or the other did this, but yeah, it's interesting. I think AD&D is probably your closest thing. But even when you look in like articles of Dragon Magazine, you see Gygax proposing changes and different things mm-hmm. to the published rules. And, and that, you know, there, it's interesting. There's a, a, a rule set out there, Adventures Dark and Deep, that is AD&D with all those, those that dragon stuff, all those articles added in to a hypothetical what Gygax's second edition might have looked like, mm-hmm. you, you know, which is interesting. Um but yeah, I think AD and D. But, but so the question is, and the hard part about that question is, we know he didn't play AD and D rules as written. Mm. We know he didn't use weapon speed. It, which mind you, only use weapon speed if you have ties, or if a fighter's trying to hit a magic user that's casting a spell. But you know, we know Gygax didn't play with the rules as written anyway. So why do they even exist for the tournaments? We know that we had tournaments at you know the early conventions. Mm-hmm. They had tournament games and they ran those. And and that's been revived. We have tournament games in GrogCon and at DaveCon. So we have modern conventions that are running TSR style tournaments. And if you're running a tournament, you need something like a solid set of rules. So mm-hmm. it's fair, quote unquote, fair that everybody's playing by the same rules. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It, it's tough because we since Gary didn't run rules as written, nobody. And I, I think it's fair to say outside the tournaments, maybe. Nobody ran rules as written back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. That's a some that's a something we we try to do today because of the challenge. But I don't know that I'm sure there are groups out there that yes they did back in the eighties. But the vast majority of people back in the eighties, I would argue, did not play rules as written mm. at, at all. You know they they did their own thing. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm becoming of the view, and I, I have no evidence really beyond anecdote here, but I'm I'm of the view that. I think that the rules as written as a concept is a post 2000, post third edition thing. Um, because so I I came back to um, I left D and D at the the end of 
first edition 1989 when second edition came out i went to university and i couldn't afford as a student to buy second editions i didn't get a second edition until the end of the second edition run about 96 something like that 97 and it was being republished um and in 98 i came back to the hobby and then obviously 98 we have the fall of wizards 97 i think um sorry wizards takes over tsr sorry the fall of tsr Mm -hmm. and you know by 2000 we have the release third edition and what was really striking to me back um, playing with people who were playing second edition was they were still, they were using all of the various combat options and all of those sort of 2.5, what I've referred to as a 2.5 edition edition stuff. They were playing around with those, but there were so many options that nobody's game was the same. So every time you sat down with a different GM, you, you know, the whole different bunch of house rules, what we've just been talking about really, but in a mm-hmm. sort of mad scale, um, so one GM I knew had something like about 15 books or something, you know, and he would complain about the role master GM, by the way, and with his chart master. And I was kind of thinking, but you've got just as many books in there. What's going on? Anyway, put that aside. When third edition arrived, you know, suddenly you have one player's handbook, which contained pretty much the core of the game. And what I noticed was that increasingly people who played that game, you know, heed to that rule book, really kind of like stuck to that and took it forward. And I do wonder whether actually this is one of the strongest elements in the development of this idea of actually now the game is, because it's a very well-designed game, it's the edition, whether you like it or not, you know, mm-hmm. a very, very well-written, well-designed game. Um, and, you know, w- was something that powered the hobby for uh, all, all the way through really to what, 2008, something like that. I think, is it something where we get like fourth edition? And that's only because Wizards wants to change it again right Um, but a lot of people played you know third edition for sort of 15 years or something straight away through to the modern game you know quite happily um a very very solid game but my point is that i wonder if that was the point where it started to become the designer's game and no longer the individual gm's game i i think there's something to that and i don't know there may be other games that started doing this before no doubt there probably are but one thing we see once you hit that point is that the rules are so codified to the point where it almost depowers, it doesn't depower the DM. And, and I, I'm not using the right terminology here, but effectively what it does is helps compensate for bad DMs to some degree, right? Mm. It, 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 if you have a rule for things and the DM doesn't have to make the rulings, so you eliminate bad rulings or, or you're attempting to eliminate bad rulings, mm. right? And I think that's what we see. You know, I, I'm playing in a Pathfinder one game currently, and you know, which is fe- effectively D and D three point seven five or something, right? You know, when you think about it, it, mm. it you know, it's a and and in that game, you know, there really is just about a rule for everything. I mean, it's very rare that you had to make some kind of call on that. And mm. and part of that, obviously, the DM still has to be very creative. They still have to make decisions. It, it doesn't minimize the DM in any way. So I don't mean mm. to say it does. But the DM's not having to make rulings very often. It's pretty much, okay, I can look it up. Here, it, Here's that modifier. Here's what happens. Here's exactly what happens. And, and you know, it's boom, 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 which mm. falls back in the procedural thing, right? If, if X plus Y equals, you know, Z, right? So, so it very much falls in that procedural thing. Yeah, and, and I'd argue that um, I would have argued back in 2002, three, four. Um, before I kind of you know came into contact with the OSR, which is like what 2006, 2007, 2008, I'd have argued that I was freed up as a GM to be creative, focus on my world, focus on my NPCs, and have to worry about mechanics of the rules. Really, I'd, I'd learn them, the players would know them, and we would just that that part of the game you adjudicate through. It's very clear. That's why I said mm-hmm. it's a well-designed game. It covers a lot of the bases. It's there wasn't a lot of need to make a lot of calls, you know, uh, and so I'm free to be creative and get on with like getting on with creating the game that I want to play. But at the same time, this is the time when the procedural elements of the early game are being removed. Like the actual kind of 10-minute turn, for example, is not something I remember from third edition. You know, the, the game the game round, the six-second mm-hmm. uh, combat round, but actually beyond that, it's much more freeform. Um, and of course, if you go forward to modern fifth edition, you know, essentially that's the way it's sort of taken further on, but you've got the six-second combat round and then it's whatever time you know if you're like you're when you're in expiration mode or whatever you're just kind of it's free form right and, and that's right. the way most people play to come back to sort of od and d's right each turn is 10 minutes um you know that way feels kind of very different feels very um 
in some way restrictive maybe even you know um but it is interesting to sort of see the impact that it has on the how you play um the the earlier games demand a lot more of the gm in terms of having to make all these judgment calls but also seem to provide uh, a skeleton around which and tools for that gm to use to sort of to give fats up the world and create something exciting um then the newer games seem to codify all the rules and then allow the gm loads of freedom but not actually give them much guidance on how exactly to be free i, I find it fascinating yeah you, you almost want to bolt to to take your procedural bits from bx say so, so you know mm-hmm. for, from the mentor basic or not meant from Mulvey basic and plug that into maybe pathfinder or you know, 3.5, and then you kind of have your best of both worlds, right? And I think that's what someone like the Alexandrian, Justin Alexander, I think if you read his blog, that's what he has done over time. I mean, he's a massive fan of the third edition and is obviously now plays the fifth edition, but constantly pointing out how the fifth edition doesn't have these three really useful tools that we really steal from the early part of the hobby. You know, and this is a guy who's played OD&D as written as well, you know, um, played a very successful open tournament, you know, open game, open table game with that uh, and they discovered all of the things that you had to sort of make up and decide how you're going to rule on stuff as you went through um so you know somebody who is very familiar with the the game through is saying you know what guys we can learn a lot from the old game and there's nothing wrong with plugging that into your modern system which brings me to where i'm at you know looking uh-huh. at a game system like gurps which is incredibly solid you know reliable system um and modular and saying to myself yeah what can i dig out of these old books and use as the basis for creating a really great game um and now i feel like we've come full circuit in our conversation which is kind of cool yeah no excellent yeah definitely and and i'm curious to see where where you go with that because you know they steve jackson games has kind of gone that themselves with dungeon fantasy but when they made dungeon fantasy they make it as a very high-powered game because they're trying to meet modern dnd they're yeah. trying to make GURPS into modern D&D where you're trying to make it into quote-unquote OSR d the older, lower-powered D&D, the, you know, zero to hero, where modern D&D is, you know, hero to superhero or, or whatever, you know, however you want to look at it. But also, you know, Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game doesn't have the procedures uh, as in, like, in the same way. You know, it, it again, futzes around with this, uh, the modern kind of, vague how do we play this game thing this everybody knows how to play role game is you know don't we no is the reality you know and actually i think that what really fascinates me is is that by going back to the original game and sort of working through i think basic editions are great for this because i think they are teaching people mm-hmm. how to run a game. Actually, that's why it's been great to go back and read them, is that you can dig out of those, the the, the procedures and also some really cool tables and really cool ideas, lots of great magic items and spells and other things that you could steal and muck, muck around with. But it gives you a, a, a structure, which is actually how to play the game in the procedural sense. So without um, the magic that is role-playing, and this is the bit that I still haven't quite got my head around, but without the magic, that interactive bit that is the conversation at the table between players and all of the making stuff up on the fly and the making rulings and things that come comes out of that, you have essentially a procedural board game which where the players can't see the board, but it's mm-hmm. been described to them. You know, and There is some magic that we have to sprinkle into this, and, and that is the you know being in role and and what that means, I guess, is the magic of what that actually means to be in role as your character and then sort of bring yourself to the table and interact with the others. That that's the magic that makes the medium different, right? Um, but I'm I guess what I'm arguing, and it's been a great conversation to have with you about this, is to sort of unpick like what it is about the original game that is so valuable, if that makes some sense. It, it it does well. You get to see those original insights. I mean, when, when you look at when you read OD and D, you know w- one thing that's very interesting. OD and D is player characters and their hirelings, henchmen,s the people that work for player characters cannot see in the dark. Period. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Doesn't matter what race they are. Yeah. If 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 you you know hire a something that lives underground to work for you, it can't see. As soon as it starts working for you, it can't see in the dark full stop i mean it's explicit in the rules because it's a pain in the butt if players can see in the dark it removes that fear of the dark 
It removes the need to have torches, which, you know, and then there are rules for mm. tracking torches and all that. And and obviously that's changed over the years with the games. I mean, even, you know, AD&D obviously changes. Um, but it's interesting that, so you see these ideas, these, you know, they, they foresaw, well, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. But, and, and it's still a problem. Infravision, ultravision, and whatever kind of vision, it, it, dark vision is, is still an issue today in games, right? Where mm. nowadays people play, or I shouldn't say that, a lot of groups don't have humans in there at all and they don't even worry about torches, mm-hmm. and, you know, which kind of removes a big part of the scariness and what a dungeon is. Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting one as well because it's one of the more, it's the thing about me and why I don't like these early games is they're so gamey. Mm-hmm. You know, like that stuff like that where like I hire, I, I know I've subdued the dragon and the dragon is now my, you know, my hench person. <laughs> right. I take him yeah. in the dungeon and the dragon can't see in the dark. Um, is really gamey. You know, yeah. it, um, but you, you're right that it is actually like um, what it is about is reinforcing this idea of the scary fear of the dark thing and the unknown and, you know, and being able to be surprised by the monsters. I mean, it's other stuff like the fact that doors always open mm-hmm. for the monsters yeah. that um, they and they also slam behind you unless you spike them open and all of those kinds of things that are a bit funhouse, I suppose. But they are yeah. a part of the game system that's sort mm-hmm. of important. It's fascinating, really. And, of course, yeah. I guess the decision to make in a modern game is, like, how much of that do you want to import? It makes sense within a sort of mythic underworld flavor, doesn't it? It, it does. And and I'm a big fan of the mythic underworld. I, I really am. I think mm. that adds a lot to a game. I know a lot of people want the dungeon ecology, and they want to know how beholders reproduce and all this kind of thing. I, I, I mean, I read all those articles by Roger Moore back in the day in Drag, and, like, everybody else <laughs> did. But that's not the game I want to play it now. I, I want to, that's why honestly my favorite D 20 fantasy game is dungeon crawl classics. Mm-hmm. I, I love dungeon crawl classics. And part of that is the gonzo nature. Part of it is the swinginess of the magic, you mm-hmm. know, makes magic dangerous and wild. You know, I, I, I really like that game. It, it calls out to me and, and that's, you know, if I had to pick one D 20 fantasy game to play, it'd be that, but, mm-hmm. but, but it fits in that mythic underworld and all that kind of thing. But, but that calls me more than, the, you know, we have to figure out the exact ecology of everything. I think the ecology mm-hmm. can be important. And I'm not saying I'm not saying to have, OK, we open this 20 by 20 room and there's a dragon in there that could have never got in there because <laughs> he can't fit through the door. I, I'm, I'm not arguing for that. But, mm. you know. Yeah, it's it is a really interesting thing, this this idea of realism. And I'm, I mean, I tend to use the word in the Tolkien-esque sense of mm-hmm. drawing upon our experience from the from this primary world and sort of you know, using that as a basis. But yeah, it's the degree to which you want to play with that and the degree which you want the game and the imaginary, like being in role is, and one of the things I've discovered, like especially with bringing rules behind the screen and doing, uh, going from other world immersion, um, it's, much more believable when things are grounded in a sense of reality as in a sense of our own personal experience you know it's easier to relate and to like feel in the moment and feel like you're in the place um and be involved in that degree and the more gamey you make it that that can be jarring so there's this balance to be had and in, in our role playing but i just find the whole thing absolutely fascinating i i agree and it, it's a journey there's not a you, you know a solid answer at this point but, but I'm excited to follow you on your journey as you continue to explore this. Well, thanks, Jason. I'm conscious of time. So was there anything else that you wanted to say about the subject of D&D that we haven't covered before you go? No, just that I, I you know, I we'll, we'll see how this interview comes out. I know you may edit it and change things around or, or do whatever. But yeah. it, but the end, I, I really want to enforce. I'm not saying that any kind of play is wrong. I'm not saying mm. house rules are bad or 5e is bad or anything else i i have preferences that, that i like and and like I say i enjoy the challenge of trying to do ADD rules as written even though it was mm. never played that way by the designers mm. and I, i'm aware of all that kind of thing and i'm definitely not telling other people to play certain things but i i just i i don't know i like i say i it, it's interesting because i'm not the only person doing this like I say i'm in a D group you have the grog mm-hmm. talk guys that try to do th- this thing rules is written for the most part and so so it's interesting you have these different things different movements Mm. in the hobby and for such a small hobby there's so many diverse ways to play these games it's one of the reasons such a great hobby yeah absolutely 
Jason Connolly, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to have a chat with you. Um, I hope wish you all the best and I'll see you soon. Okay, thank you. Big thank you once again to Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast for coming and sharing his thoughts with us. I'll stick the link to his podcast in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. Some great stuff down there. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. So please call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue and leave a 90 second message. And thank you once again to John from Tale of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. And most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.